Hello, Charlie Gladstone here and welcome to my Some Good Mavericks podcast for my Some Good Ideas website. This is a brand new occasional series called What I Think About When I Think About Food in which I am going to speak to people involved in the world of food about what really matters to them when it comes to their professional subject. This is a, another lockdown series, and so I have sent specific questions to my guests and asked them to send the answers back to me when they are ready. I really like this way of doing podcasts. I think it actually gives my guests a little bit more time to reflect on the answers without me nodding or encouraging them to end. And I think that often when people talk for a little bit, the most interesting stuff comes out towards the end of their answer. I always remember a photographer friend of mine saying back in the days that everyone shot on film that it was often the last two or three frames on a roll of film that were the killer shots and of course nowadays we look at the back of our camera or our laptop think we've got the shot and wrap up and in many ways I think that these analog answers are the same sort of thing they give people time to think about the question and maybe that thought shapes itself as they talk a bit more anyway my first guest on Food Matters is the incredible food writer, stylist and chef Olia Hercules. You may remember that in an earlier edition of this podcast, I interviewed Olia at her home in London. She was incredibly patient with me because the first time I turned up, I had the wrong chip in my um, Zoom recording machine and it kept cutting out and I had no idea I had the wrong chip and I eventually just had to give up and having talked to her for about 45 minutes and go home and then come back another day. It was a bad day that actually because I fell over in the street. It was snowy um, in front of some uh, teenage girls who um, found that quite amusing. I felt like a total idiot, of course, as you do. Anyway, that's enough about me. This is about Olia. You may well have seen Olia perform at the Good Life Experience. This summer, during lockdown, her brand new and highly anticipated book, Summer Kitchens, came out and it really is wonderful. We have a signed copy in each of our cabins and cottages at Glendie and um, indeed a couple of copies at home which we have been using. Uh, You don't really need me to praise this when Nigella Lawson has said that this book is a complete revelation. Um, Or indeed Anna Jones has said, what a wonderful world Olia and this cookbook transport us to. I am going to tell you the questions that I asked Olia and then I am going to let her speak. My first question was, tell me about your book. I gather that the summer kitchen is a particular part of the garden in Ukraine. So please tell me about that. To explain what a summer kitchen is, it's like a miniature version of your main home that pretty much everyone in rural areas and small towns and in villages People people just have one. So a few steps away from your regular front door of your main house, you've got another one that is uh, like a miniature version of the main house. So ours was made out of brick. It had a roof and two windows and a porch. 
but inside is just one room and it's a, it's a kitchen. And that's where everyone cooks in the summer and also does this almost semi-industrial uh, operation of uh, preserving your vegetable glut for winter. Um, so come May, you know, during the hot months, your hub, kind of your family activities all shift from the main house into this kitchen where food is cooked and also as I mentioned all of your fermentation and jam making or whatever else happens as well. They existed in one form or another from the early 20th century I think but there's no records really so I just go by research that I've done on the ground um, and in the 1950s after the Second World War, when people started kind of living a little bit better and settled down a bit into the new life, uh, a young couple would get married and they would build very quickly, build this structure, and the one-room structure, and they would put a, bed, a makeshift bed in and maybe a gas stove, or if you had a specialist in the village, uh, they would build a masonry oven for you there in which you kind of uh, cook using wood and also it, it heats the whole place up. And the couple would live there while they built their bigger house. Uh, very often in the past, uh, your neighbors, you know, villages, 50 people would come and help you build your main house in exchange for something like a meal. And then they'd ex expect the same uh, in return at some point. And then you would also um, sow your seeds and grow your vegetables and plant your orchard, etc. And then once your big house was ready, you'd move there and then you'd use the initial kit, the little building, the little house, summer kitchen, as the kitchen that you cook in in the summer the following years. And when I interviewed uh, women, mostly women, I, we traveled about 10,000 kilometers all over Ukraine to collect all of this information, the stories and the recipes. So when they interviewed um, the women that welcomed me into their summer kitchens, uh, one of the reasons why they said that summer kitchens uh, remain kind of, and some of them are disappearing, but they're still around, is because well, Ukraine gets really hot in the summer. And especially in the past, you weren't able to afford uh, an aircon so you would cook in this summer kitchen so it it's not like cooking un under annoying it's still an enclosed kind of space but you can open all of the windows and the door and then you know there's breeze coming through and cooking in the summer becomes much easier as Ukraine gets so so hot in the summer and another <laughs> another reason they said was because then you can keep your main house quite tidy because the children, you know, run around outside and if they run into the summer kitchen you're cooking there, you can give them something, a snack, whatever, and then they just run off. And then at the end of the day, you've just got this one room to clean up. Come September, and this is one of its biggest functions of the summer kitchen, you will have a huge glut of vegetables and fruit that you've grown so my aunt last year had a 40 kilo glut of aubergines and my mom had a 35 kilo glut of tomatoes. Uh, 
So you'd collect your three litre jars uh, and you'd wash them and dry them. And then, uh, yeah, a really intense kind of uh, pickling session will happen for a week or so. A lot of Olia's writing deals with seasonality. So I wanted to ask her if she thought there was any chance that, in the UK at least, we will genuinely start to embrace seasonal food. It's a popular subject amongst foodies and an important one, but might it ever become a really mainstream thing again? I really hope that uh, people start cooking more seasonally in the UK. I've already seen a shift uh, in the last few years, or at least in London. I don't know what it's like all over the country, but I really hope that people realise that, um, I mean, it's a better thing for you as well, for your health, and also, you know, vegetables and fruit in season have a lot more flavour. So if you're using a really good ingredient, a really ripe fruit when it's supposed to be ripe, or, you know, a vegetable that's in its right season, then half of your job is done, really. With great ingredients, it's just so much easier to cook. I really hope that this is what people realise and that, yeah, that seasonal cooking becomes mainstream and, and not just a trend, but also just a common practice. One of the key things of Summer Kitchens is that Olia writes eloquently and passionately about pickling. So I wanted to ask her about this aspect of her food and whether she applies that to her daily life at home in London. So, yeah, as I, as I mentioned, you know, I might over-romanticise Summer Kitchens a little bit because this is kind of the stuff of my childhood but they are very practical places and places of real graft. So pickling is a very natural, and all of this, you know, fermentation, fermenting is a really natural thing that people in Ukraine do every kind of end of August, September. And it's something that I grew up with. You know, we just make things go sour. You just pop a few vegetables into a jar and then you pour a brine over it. And it's the most delicious pickle. And apparently it's um, healthy. So it's always been a part of my life. Um, so when it became kind of trend trendy and mainstream here in the UK, well, it just made me really happy, to be honest. And I do pickle. I, I still ferment um, here in, in London. Um on a less kind of intense scale than they do back at home in Ukraine. But I love the flavour. I mean, maybe in, in Ukraine initially was a necessity, although yeah, we, lo we love the flavour of it so much. Um, and so do I still. I love that slightly fizzy, salty and sweet uh, flavour that um, fermentation gives you. And, you know, I've got a few jars on the go now. And actually, recently, I've adapted um, this thing of um, fermenting things that are a little bit too fibrous. So, for example, cabbage cores, 
cauliflower cores and uh, cauliflower leaves, if they're intact, are all very good. Just chop them up into kind of uh, bite-sized pieces or, or bigger, put them in the jar, pour um, you know a litre of water with, with 20 grams of salt diluted in it, some flavourings like garlic or dill or some coriander seeds or something, and maybe a beetroot as well, sliced, to give it a little bit of colour. And you just leave it in your warm kitchen. It's so hot now, within three days you'll see bubbles and it will start kind of getting there. And within a week you've got the most delicious pickle and you haven't wasted any of the your veg of guts. Now, Olia is definitely a polymath. Um, she's a great writer, a great chef, She's a stylist, she's very good at publicity, she's super hardworking, she's charming. It seems to me that to be a successful food writer, you need to be, if not all of these things, many things. Um, so I want to find out a little bit about not just the process of writing this book, but how it was conceived and how long it took and that sort of thing. And Olia gave me a, a long and very interesting answer to that. So I started this project uh, about five or even six years ago and I thought that maybe it would be a magazine feature and I started researching it um, back at home and then the magazine feature didn't go anywhere which I'm kind of happy about now uh, because I got an opportunity to write a cookbook with uh, Bloomsbury. I just pitched them and they loved the idea and here I am again writing about Ukraine and niche cuisine. I thought that you know, it, it might never happen, but it did. So we traveled uh, about around 10,000 kilometers around Ukraine, which is nothing really, because Ukraine is huge. Uh, it's the second biggest country in Europe after Russia. It's bigger than France. Um, but yeah, we traveled in as much as we could and uh, with my photographers, Joe Woodhouse and Elena Heatherwick, and we visited homes, uh, people's homes and summer kitchens. And um, I asked people probably quite annoying questions about their summer kitchens and forgotten recipes. Um, and then they were really kind. And they, they told us stories and they gave us recipes and they even cooked for us. And we took thousands of beautiful fo photos, which you can see in the book. And it was just a great... Um, process quite arduous like it was hard it was a hard journey each time we did kind of four bursts of uh, a week or 10 days all together um, and um, you know there's loads of potholes in Ukraine driving uh, was quite tough for our drivers we had different kind of driver fixer people that helped us along the way and then uh, we shot a few dishes back uh, in the UK as well, in our kitchen here in London. Uh, whatever we didn't capture uh, during our travels. And um, yeah, and I just uh, collected all my handwritten notes and uh, plowed through them, uh, wrote down recipes, tested them as much as possible and um, gave in my manuscript and we edited it and... Yeah, it was a really uh, positive... I really enjoyed doing this book so much. And another great thing about this book is that um, we weren't able to travel to some parts of Ukraine, East Ukraine, for 
obvious reasons, or if you don't know, there's still fighting going on there. And uh, Crimea, similarly, is occupied by Russia, so we couldn't go there either. But I kind of put on an, out an appeal online uh, a couple of years ago, and I asked people to uh, message me if they have any memories connected to summer kitchens. And about, I, you know, I received a, un, just under 100 letters, 100 emails, I replied back with some interview questions and they wrote back to me, about 60 came back and I uh, got rid of the questions and we very gently edited um, people's answers into kind of like love letters to summer kitchens and unfortunately there was only seven, you know, we could only publish seven of them, uh, but I'm planning to put the rest of them online and it's... I can't describe how lovely it is to have other people's uh, voices in the book. Uh, it's just such a beautiful part of the book. As soon as I got my copy, that was the first thing that I reread, these uh, people's love letters to Summer Kitchens and their childhood memories of them. One of the things which I think about a lot is that I'm very, very lucky to live in the countryside and to have a garden. And, of course, a lot of people don't have a garden or a balcony. And so I've been wondering this summer whether there's anything that they can meaningfully grow at home. And I asked Olia that question. If you don't have a garden or a balcony, I mean, everyone has some kind of a windowsill. You know, you plants, some plants only just need, you know, a little bit of uh, sunlight. Uh, the best thing to grow would be herbs absolutely they're quite expensive and also you you get a limited a choice I mean it's getting better you can get you know most things that you'd want but I cook for example with a lot with uh, purple basil and this is the one that I'm trying to grow this year and I also go through quite a lot of dill so um, I ordered some seeds called mammoth dill seeds from Higgledy Gardens an amazing uh, small supply of flower seeds normally, but he's doing this mammoth dill that can apparently grow up to four or even six feet tall. I am holding my fingers crossed for that one. Another big question that is occupying those who work in food, and indeed we've been addressing quite robustly at the Good Life Experience um, through our farm shop and pub, and indeed in Scotland, is the issue of food waste, which is a really significant major problem. So I wanted to ask Olia um, if she was working to address food waste and if so, what precisely she was doing. And, and this is what she said. Um, you know, we just kind of naturally address food waste in Ukraine. Again, it's not a particular kind of trend thing. You just don't throw things away, I guess. Uh, bread was absolutely sacred. You don't you don't chuck it in the bin, you know, especially if our bread was pretty good, if it's home-baked, you just use it. There's a great recipe in the book uh, where you cook vegetables and split peas and then almost very similar to how Italians do it with papa pomodoro, you just add all your kind of dry bread crusts in. And also, as I mentioned before, you know, your, for example, your outer cabbage leaves, which normally people just chuck in the bin because they're too fibrous to eat. 
normally but if you slice them thinly and cook them down it will break up and it will still be delicious or as i mentioned with the cauliflower leaves you can you can ferment them just put them in in the brine and leave them alone for a bit and they will soften with time and then uh, you can make these delicious uh, fermented cabbage leaf rolls so very similar to your cabbage rolls that are made all over uh, eastern europe but with fermented cabbage leaves oh, stuffed with really good pork and barley is just incredibly delicious uh, it, it hardly needs me to say that this has been a very peculiar summer and of course uh, endless people have suffered but but I have a particular type of sympathy, not, not a unique sympathy, but a, but a particular type of sympathy for authors who have released a book this spring or summer and who are planning elaborate and um, important tours and have had to cancel all of that. So um, I wanted to ask Olia how she's dealt with the problems posed by releasing a book in this spring-summer, um, and what does she have planned and what she's intending or doing instead. And here is her answer. Uh, this has been a peculiar spring and summer. I had a very extensive uh, cookbook tour planned. I was supposed to go to food festivals all over the UK, in England, in uh, Scotland and Ireland and um, Wales, and they have all been cancelled. And I have been really, really sad about it. Uh, what can we do though? So now everything is just moving online. I'm working really, really hard to, you know, record demos and uh, little videos and talks all from my own home um, because you want to keep that connection with people. You know, one of the saddest things is that I won't be able to uh, meet a lot of my readers. It, it always gives me such a huge boost of energy to meet um, people who love to read my books. It just gives me more strength and energy to, to keep going and, and to write more. I, f I find that them really inspirational, actually. So yeah, but it's all going online and I really hope that people will tune in and, um, and you know, I will always, always answer questions if anybody sends me questions and... Uh, I will try to do as much as I can. Um, as you may know, I have been a passionate advocate of shopping local for many, many years, probably about 25 years now through my work. And um, there are very encouraging signs after this lockdown that independent sellers of everything from books to records to fruit and veg to corner shops are having a, a good time and are seeing, you know, a relatively good time and seeing a boost in trade. And so I wonder what the role of independent booksellers and indeed smaller festivals in a normal year might be in promoting a, um, a book such as this and, and what indeed we can do to support these small businesses. I mean, it may be, it will be indeed more expensive buying Olia's book from an independent bookseller than from Amazon. But if we believe in independent booksellers or independent retailers of any sort, then the only way that things are going to go, that they will be able to survive is by supporting them. Interestingly enough, I bought uh, all of the copies, I think, that I have of Olia's book from her local bookshop by mail order during lockdown, 
all signed by her. Anyway, that's enough of me rambling on this. Um, here is Olia talking about the importance of smaller festivals and independent bookshops. All small festivals and um, all of the events that I used to do at kind of indie bookstores, they just, they're great at connecting you to people. You know, I've met, um, I've met so many of my readers at these events and there's just nothing like it to talk to someone and see them and then have a little chat afterwards. How can we support them? Well, with festivals, as soon as they're back, I just really hope that people just go. You know, it might seem like an expensive uh, thing, but if you think about music festivals, you know, a lot of the food festivals are a lot cheaper and, and you, you, can, you can get out so much out of them. Um, yeah, I'm going to really, really miss them this summer. And in terms of indie bookstores, yeah, just your local bookstore, check with them if they stock my book. And if you ask them for a signature, you know, just ask your, your indie bookshop to message me or email me and I will send some book plates uh, and, and do personalized, you know, so signatures and stuff. Uh, absolutely, I can do that. And my local bookshop, uh, Newham Books, is doing that. Actually, uh, Vivian lives just across the road from me, so she just drops the books off on my uh, on my porch and then I sign them and then she picks them up and takes them there. So yeah, contact Newham if you want a signed cookbook. Right, well, thank you very much to Olia Hercules. Do please buy her book. Do please buy her book through an independent bookseller. Do come and see her at the Good Life Experience in 2021. Thank you very much indeed to Olya. I do hope you've enjoyed this first episode of my new series, Food Matters. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Thank you again to Olya. Thank you very much to my friend, Jim Friend. And I'll be back with episode two very soon. See you. Bye.